Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. Updates, analysis, and deep dives into war fighting, strategy, and leadership. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Professor Michael Mandelbaum. Professor Mandelbaum is Professor Emeritus of American Foreign Policy at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Professor Mandelbaum has also written and edited over 20 books on various aspects of American foreign policy, including Michael's latest book, called The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower. This book provides an excellent overview of the phases of US power and the character of the United States as a global power and also has some interesting discussions regarding how wars have shaped the United States position in a global order. So I look forward to discussing some of these issues further on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me today, Michael. My pleasure. This book provides a really comprehensive and far-reaching overview of the way in which we can consider the different phases of United States power as an international actor. So what are the four ages of power that you discuss in your book? Sure. The book covers 250 years from 1765 to 2015. In that period, the United States became steadily more powerful and we should remember that power is relative. So the United States became more powerful in comparison with other countries. And as such, it played four different roles in the international order. From 1765 to 1865, it was a weak power. And as a weak power, it was concerned mainly to defend its independence against stronger powers, the great powers of Europe, uh, Great Britain above all. From 1865 to 1945, the United States functioned in the international system as a great power, one among several. And uh, as such, it engaged in the two kinds of activities that are common to all great powers. First, it cooperated with, but also opposed other great powers. And second, it carved out its own sphere of influence. The American sphere of influence encompassed Central America and the Eastern part of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, I should say that in 1898, the United States acquired a formal empire when it annexed the Philippines after defeating Spain. But the American career as an empire was short-lived The empire wasn't very large compared with the major empires of Europe. It was half-hearted, and in truth, the Americans couldn't wait to get rid of it. Well, from 1945 to 1990, the United States was what came to be called a superpower, one of two. And in that period, it conducted a political, military, and economic rivalry with the other superpower, the Soviet Union, all around the world. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990, the United States emerged into the fourth age of its foreign policy. It became what I call a hyperpower, 
The term uh, comes from the French foreign minister, Hubert Védrine, who called the United States an hyperpuissance. This was the period of maximal American relative power. The United States had no rivals and no real security concerns. It was also the period of maximal flexibility and freedom of action for American foreign policy. And that era, as I say at the end of the book, came to, the, it came to an end in 2015. Mm-hmm. And I think it was quite interesting in your book how you indicate some continuities in the characteristics of the foreign policy approach of the United States over time. So could you talk a little bit about those continuities? Yes, the book is organized around continuities and changes. The changes involve increasing American power and the four successive international roles the United States has played, which I've just described. Uh, But the four ages of American foreign policy also specifies three important continuities over the 250 years of American foreign policy that I covered. In that period, uh, in my view, the United States has been an unusually ideological country, an unusually economic country, and an unusually democratic country. So let me explain briefly what I mean by each. By an ideological country, I mean that American foreign policy, more than the foreign policies of other countries, has sought to spread America's own political values. The major political values being peace among countries and democracy within them. Now, I hasten to add that this has not been the only, or even for much of that period, the dominant American approach to foreign policy. The United States has also practiced what political scientists call realism which emphasizes power, a balance of power, defending and promoting national interests rather than values. But for the United States, values, democracy, peace, the effort to transform countries and international relations has been unusually important. It has always been part of the American agenda And it is its relative importance for the United States compared with other countries that makes American foreign policy distinctively American. Well, the second continuity has to do with economics. When I say the United States has been an unusually economic country, I mean that more than other countries, the United States has attempted to use economic mechanisms to achieve political ends. This goes all the way back to the American Revolution. And in the book, I describe how the triggering mechanism for the American Revolution was the decision of the British Parliament to impose certain taxes on the 13 American colonies. The colonials rebelled, and the first thing they did was to organize a boycott of British goods hoping that that would put pressure on the British merchants who were exporting those goods to, in turn, put pressure on the British government to withdraw the taxes. And it did work for a while. So for much of American history, the United States used trade 
as a lever to try to affect the foreign and domestic policies of other countries. And in the 20th century and continuing into the 21st, the United States has also used the export of capital as a foreign policy tool. The third distinctive continuity in American foreign policy that is a thread throughout the four ages of American foreign policy is America as conducting an unusually democratic foreign policy. By that, I mean that in comparison with other countries, the public has had an unusually broad influence on America's relations with other countries. Traditionally, in the great powers of Europe, foreign policy was the preserve of the monarchy and the aristocracy. But of course, the United States had neither. And so there was wider scope for the public as a whole to influence foreign policy. And this scope was unusually wide as well, because the public has had and continues to have multiple channels through which to influence America's relations with other countries. There are the major departments of the federal government, the Department of State, of Defense, and the Treasury. There is the White House, of course, the, the central headquarters for foreign policy, and there's also the American Congress. And each of these institutions offers an opportunity to exert influence, which the American public and interest groups and ethnic groups and many others have done consistently since the beginning of the Republic. So as I say, and to summarize, the continuities that the four ages of American foreign policy stipulates are ideological, economic, and democratic, as I have defined these terms. Mm -hmm. And I'm also very interested in the way in which those continuities intersect with decision points when the United States has made a decision to enter into or exit from wars. You talked about how the United States has been unusually democratic as a global power. How has that intersected with decisions of the United States to enter into or exit from wars? Uh, it's had a very important effect throughout American history. Public opinion has helped to start wars through a recurrent pattern by which a dramatic event occurs, usually abroad, but sometimes within the United States, as was the case with the terrorist attacks on Washington and New York on September 11, 2001. This galvanizes the American public. They pay attention to something they had previously ignored. The world suddenly looks far more dangerous to them than it had before this event occurred. And this creates a demand for a more robust foreign policy, which has sometimes led to war. This was true, for example, for the Spanish-American War, when the destruction of the American battleship Maine in Havana Harbor created a climate of opinion in the United States that led to war against Spain. And then a little less than two decades later, the sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania by German submarines in the midst of World War I, when the United States was not a belligerent, was not part of the war, 
turned American public opinion sharply against Germany and paved the way for the United States to enter World War I against Germany in 1917. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7, 1941, precipitated the United States into World War II. And of course, as I noted, the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, paved the way for not one, but two American wars, the one in Afghanistan and then the second Gulf War, the 2003 war against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So public opinion and its response to dramatic events have helped to start wars, but public opinion has also helped to end wars. The United States public has become disillusioned with wars. This was true for the Korean War in the 1950s, for the Vietnam War in the 1960s, for the Iraq War in the first decade of the 21st century. And the American turn in public opinion against the war has put political pressure on the administration conducting that war so that eventually administrations chose to end American involvement in all three wars. Now, I should note that in all three cases, the American public did not reject the goals for which the wars were being fought. Rather, the public decided that the pursuit of those goals had become too expensive, that the United States was paying more than it was worth to try to achieve the goals for which the United States was fighting in Korea, in Vietnam, and in Iraq. And the price that was important to the American public, the cost of the war, was denominated not in dollars, or at least not first and foremost in dollars, but rather in lives. Americans decided that they didn't want to pay any more lives to pursue those goals. And ultimately, administrations were forced by the political pressure and by the outcome of elections due to the change in American public opinion to withdraw American troops from these places, or at least to end active warfare. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And it's interesting how there are these sort of punctuated moments of foreign crises or external events, of course, in the case of 9-11, an event that was externally driven, but that occurred on American soil, that then prompt the entry into wars, but then as costs mount, then there's also an increasing sentiment that those costs might not be worth pursuing in terms of trying to achieve the original objective. Do you think that there could be an event or a punctuation point that could prompt the United States to become more directly militarily involved in the current war that's going on in Ukraine? I think the United States will not engage directly with the Russian army, nor will other NATO forces do so because of the danger of escalation to the use of nuclear weapons. During the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union fought proxy wars against each other, but each observed the unwritten rule not to use its own military forces directly against the other 
for fear of triggering a disastrous escalation. And my expectation is that that rule will hold for the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So your book covers a period up until 2015. And given your extensive research into the United States as a global actor and into United States foreign policy, what do you think is coming next for the United States in terms of their position in the international system? In the last part, the fourth age of the four ages of American foreign policy, I described the world between 1990 and 2015, which was an unusually peaceful one. And that era of peace, which coincided with unchallenged American predominance, ended in 2015. And for those who are interested in what happened and why, I can refer your listeners to a book I published in 2019 called The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth, which is about how Russia in Europe, China in East Asia, and Iran in the Middle East became so-called revisionist powers, seeking to overturn the political status quo by the use of force if necessary. That's the world in which we live now. We have three powers determined to overturn the status quo, to expand their own power and influence, and if possible, to drive the United States out of their regions. The United States, for its part, is present in all three regions and has a network of allies in all three, all of whom want the United States to stay and lead a coalition against the revisionist power. The countries in East Asia want the United States there to check China, and of course that includes Australia. The countries in Europe want the United States to continue to be the mainstay of NATO, and the countries in the Middle East want the United States to confront and deter Iran. In fact, they would like the United States to do more in this regard. So the great question overhanging American foreign policy and therefore overhanging international politics for the next decade at least is, will the United States fulfill the roles that other countries want for it? Will the United States be a stalwart champion of resisting China's efforts at hegemony in East Asia? Will it do the same in response to Mr. Putin's aspirations in Europe? And will it act to check Iran? So far, the United States is accepting these challenges, but there is dissent. There are other views. Domestic politics tends to get entangled with foreign policy. So while at this point, it does look as if the United States will sustain this global role. We simply don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we certainly don't. And I mean, it does seem to me that the current conflict in Ukraine is further exacerbating those fractures that you mentioned. So we've seen recently Russia and Iran aligning themselves and China, whilst it might still be considering itself as somewhat neutral, certainly is not aligning itself with the position of the United States and 
other Western countries in terms of the stance that it's taking vis-a-vis Russia around this conflict. So do you see this particular conflict as being a sort of a defining moment in pushing the United States further towards the position that you mentioned of really galvanizing support in a way on one side of a global fracture where we see those other powers that you mentioned, China, Russia, Iran, on the other side? Well, I think that division, that cleavage is already pretty deep. And I don't see it changing unless and until, and this is a point I make in my previous book, The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth, I don't see it changing unless and until there is regime change in these three countries, because I believe that their aggressive policies come out of their domestic systems. I elaborate why I think that is true in the rise and fall of peace on earth. As for the United States itself, one, to me, very interesting and significant feature of the American role in the Ukraine war thus far is how much support there is in the American public for the assistance that the United States is giving to Ukraine. One of the recurrent themes in my current book, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, is that every single American war, without exception, has provoked serious opposition and dissent within the United States. Now, that dissent has taken different forms in different wars. In the Revolutionary War in the 18th century, those who did not believe in fighting the British and then breaking off from the British Empire, simply packed up and moved to Canada. In World War II, to take another example, the most intense opposition to American involvement in World War II came before the United States formally entered the war. There was an organization called America First that lobbied strenuously to keep the United States out of the European war, but After Pearl Harbor, it was considerably weakened and faded away. So were there serious dissent against supporting Ukraine in the way that the United States is? It would not be surprising. It would be keeping with the historical pattern. And yet we haven't seen it, at least not yet. There are grumbles in Congress and among some people, some academics in the country. But generally speaking, the support has been pretty strong. And I think there are several reasons for this. One is American troops are not fighting. And when American troops are not fighting, the American public is fairly permissive in foreign policy. Another reason is that Americans are very law-minded and the Russian attack on Ukraine was as clear a breach of international law as can be imagined. The basic international law is the the sanctity of sovereignty. You're not supposed to cross borders and invade another country, but that's exactly what Putin's Russia has done. And then there's a third reason that I think support for the American assistance to Ukraine has been so robust. I mentioned earlier that America has had two distinct approaches to foreign policy. idealist, ideological approach promoting American values, and the so-called realist approach defending American interests. 
when a particular policy follows one of those traditions but violates the other, then there tends to be serious domestic opposition to it. We see that, for example, in contemporary current American policy towards Saudi Arabia. Uh, the United States has uh, substantial interests in having a good working relationship with Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia and its crown prince are not exactly faithful to American political values, and that means that there are cross pressures on the administration uh, where Saudi Arabia is concerned. When Mr. Biden went to the Middle East recently and met with the crown prince, he, he encountered or incurred some serious criticism. But, and this is the point, when it comes to supporting the Ukrainians against Russia, American values and American interests are aligned. America has an interest in preventing Russia from becoming once again a European imperial power, but American values are also involved because the defense of Ukraine is a defense of international law, and Ukraine is a democracy, certainly not a perfect democracy, but far more democratic than Putin's Russia. So in helping Ukraine, the United States is promoting its most basic value, that is democracy. Those are the reasons I think that at least so far, and we don't know whether this will continue as the war goes on, but at least so far, by the standards of the 250 years of American history, that I discuss in the four ages of American foreign policy, this particular foreign policy support for Ukraine has enjoyed unusually broad and deep domestic political support. Mm -hmm. That bipartisan support has been striking and somewhat unusual given the current domestic political context in the United States, but I can see how there is that alignment of values and interests which makes it compelling. It's a great book. There's a lot more in the book. So I'll obviously put a link to that in the show notes so that listeners can find out more and check it out for themselves. So I've really enjoyed the discussion and I appreciate you sharing your reflections and insights. Thanks so much for joining me today, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. Music.